Let's turn in the scriptures to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we'll read verses 8 through 20 as we continue our series in, um, in the book of Acts. I invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. It's on page 928 of your pew Bibles. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine a great city under the oppressive control of an evil king. And you can almost picture in your mind a dark castle that rises above the city. And uh, that castle looms its shadow over all the people so that the people go about under their slavery to this evil king, uh, uh, oblivious to the light that could be shining upon the city and they walk around with this heaviness upon them and the darkness pervades like a fog over the whole city that dark castle with its fortress like walls keeping the people in keeping the people under an oppressive power and as you think of this picture in your mind as it comes to life for you i really want you to realize that this is the city of ephesus this is the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. This is what um, it. Uh, this is just a picture, a symbolic picture of what that city was like. One of the great cities of the ancient world. Uh, it had one of the seven wonders, the Temple of Artemis, which which rose like a dark castle in in many ways over the city, 
And uh, this city was known for its commerce, for its trade, for, for its um, uh, magnificent towers. But it was also known uh, for its witchcraft, for its occultism. And in fact, uh, there's a phrase called the Ephesian letters. And the Ephesian letters were not actually letters that you would write and send to people. They were actually um, magical uh, amulets and, and magical phrases written on amulets, talisman, and scrolls. And these things were called the Ephesian letters because they were so prominent in that city. Um, in fact, if you look through the documents that have been found um, from the city of Ephesus that have been retrieved from its, its rubble heap, you'll, you'll find that for every grocery list and for every um, you know, a, a, a official letter from the city, every bureaucratic letter, you'll also find an Ephesian letter. You'll find scraps of talisman and, and secret incantations and, and, and names of demons and names of powerful figures to combat these demons. This was uh, pre- so prevalent in this city that there was virtually no one who didn't have some sort of um, trade in these, in these magical arts. It was a city of witchcraft, and it was a city in which we saw in this text uh, there were many demon-possessed people. There was, in fact, a dark castle that loomed over the city, and that is the dark castle of the evil one. Satan had his grip on this city. And he had his grip on his city, on this city in, 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 in some of these outright ways in which uh, we, we don't see as prominent today, right? Witchcraft, occultism, talisman, amulets, magical scrolls. But I hope you see by the end of this sermon, first of all, that this city is not so strange to us for there is a dark castle that looms over many cities today. Dark castle of unbelief, satanic oppression that looms perhaps even over the city of Dayton. Forces of darkness that pervade this present age. Isn't it interesting that Paul speaks um, in his letter to Ephesus, when he writes to Ephesian Christians, he keeps bringing up dark spiritual forces behind the scenes. And he wants to mention this to them. Why? Because it was the world in which they lived. They were constantly reminded of these powers, the magical arts traded in the commerce of their city. And so he, he warns them. He says, there is a present power of darkness. There are cosmic forces that seek to put you down. And yet at the same time, he says, look at Christ. Look at how Christ has made a conquest into these powers. Look at how he has brought down that dark castle and it is even now crumbling before your eyes. And that's what we see in this passage today. In this passage, we see the gospel of God's kingdom triumphing over pagan powers of darkness. We see a God who assures us of the gospel's success against these evil forces And we see this through three cracks that shake the foundations of the dark castle. Three cracks that that start to to shake it and make it crumble to the ground. So that the dark fortress, which holds the city of Ephesus in its grip, loses its control. That's an encouragement to us as we look back and saw what God did then, as we think about what he can do even now. The dark forces, the, the, the addictions that grip our city and that shake even Christians to their core. 
Well, the first crack in the castle walls comes through Paul's preaching. And you notice that his preaching in Ephesus was hard won. I mean, this is, this is uh, blood, sweat, and tears that went, in, that went into getting the word of God out over two years. Good news comes first to the synagogue, but then you see this, this strong pushback uh, in which we, we've seen this almost predictably in the book of Acts. Uh, the, the gospel comes first to the Jews, but somehow, although there's many Jews who believe, there uh, are a bulk of them who say, no, we do not uh, embrace the Savior. And so Paul is pushed out. He's forced to find somewhere else, but he doesn't give up. He doesn't go to another city. He leans in. And where does he, where does he find to preach? Well, he finds uh, a philosophy hall, uh, the, the hall of Tyrannus. And this is a place where in the morning and in the evening, uh, Tyrannus, who was a philosopher, would take up his trade and he would, uh, he would teach his philosophy to students. But there's this time in the, in the middle of the day, time called a siesta. Many of you wish it was still around today. And uh, this is the time where Tyrannus would say, all right, I'm going to go home and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch, catch a break. I'm going to snooze for a bit. And Paul said, hey, could, can I rent out your hall so that I can preach my own philosophy? Which, by the way, is, 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 is the truth, the truth of the living God. And, and Tyrannus rents him out this hall. And so you have to notice what Paul is doing. You have to put this together. This is Paul's schedule. From 7 a.m. to 11 a.m., uh, he was working as a leather craftsman. He would put on his apron. He would put a sweatband around his forehead. And he would be working, working, working until at 11 a.m., uh, sounded the time where everyone in the city would take a break. They'd take a siesta. And at that point, Paul would, would hightail it over to the hall of Tyrannus where he would start teaching. And he had disciples that would invite their friends and they'd come say, hey, why don't you use your siesta today to come and listen uh, to this truth with which we've heard, this beautiful truth of Jesus. And uh, he'd come and, and they'd come into the hall of Tyrannus and they'd listen to Paul who would preach from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And at that point, people would go back to their work. And Paul, I don't know what he would do then. Either take a break, finally get a break after that, the, the, the long uh, manual labor and, and preaching labor that he had just done. Or, or maybe he would find other ways to engage people in the city from 4 p.m. until 9 p.m. Where people would finally go home and prepare to go to sleep. Hard-won, diligent labors in the gospel for two years. Sweat and tears and blood went into this. And at the same time this is happening, God is bringing success through these special miracles that he's using to draw people to the preaching of the gospel. Now notice, what were these special miracles? Well, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he's saying that uh, these Pieces of um, uh, these handkerchiefs and these aprons that uh, had touched Paul were taken to people who had demons uh, possessing them or who had sicknesses, and they were healed and freed from oppression just by touching these things. Now, I wonder if any of you have received a letter or seen a modern-day uh, televangelist pitching uh, a prayer cloth that he can send your way to give you healing. Have any of you received that? Uh, I've received a letter. I, I found a letter in the trash one day uh, that uh, was making this pitch. Oh, if you just give a simple donation, then we can send you a prayer cloth, which has been specially blessed, which will give you healing. It's utter nonsense. 
utter nonsense. That is, uh, it's really shameful, counterfeit work of, of, uh, of modern televangelists. Um, the, the, the first reason it's, it's quite shameful is this was extraordinary. This was unusual miracles taking place. It was, it was for a specific place in time, and you'll see with a, with a specific message. This isn't something that we should try to reduplicate today. The second thing you've got to notice is you know, Luke himself will first notice that Luke calls it extraordinary. He's saying this is an unusual kind of miracle. The second thing he says, and that we're shown, is that these are not random articles of clothing. These are Paul's work clothes. These are the things that he used to put blood, sweat, and tears into a life where he could then go and proclaim the gospel. So he takes uh, his, his sweatband around his head. That's the handkerchief that it's talking about. And he takes an apron around his waist. And these are the things that he then... Uh, then takes off at the end of the day and people grab and they touch and they're healed. What's happening here? God is drawing attention to this, that through the tireless efforts of this humble servant, the gospel will win the day. That it's this heart of a servant like Paul, who's willing to stoop and, and do manual labor and, and not just pawn off this gospel message, but really willing to put his life into it. It's through that uh, the, the blood, sweat, and tears of that servant that the gospel goes forth and goes forth with power to save and redeem. So these are not random articles of clothing. This is connected to Paul's work in the investment he puts into the city. And God is saying, you see that investment? You see that gospel preacher? I'm gonna, I'm gonna do incredible things through, through that gospel that he proclaims. And so what he actually does, God is, is battling the magic of the day with miracles of the day that stoop down to the level of the people and say, you want some physical token that I can, that I can do what I say, say I'm going to do? Look at what I did with, with, with Paul's sweatband. Look at what I did with his apron. And he connects this tireless preaching and manual labor of this servant with the healing power he's going to bring. What's the application for us? I, I think that right away here is something that we need to notice. And it's this, that friends, your hard-won efforts to share the good news of Jesus is an effective assault against Satan, against the dark tower. That God is, is showing you early on in this passage, this pledge that your, your efforts to share the gospel and your efforts to, to work uh, amongst uh, your fellow Daytonians in such a way that you can speak the word of God to your family, to your friends. This is not in vain. It is the very thing that God uses to break through, to, to, to drive cracks into the dark tower. There's a second crack that forms in the dark tower looming over Ephesus. And this really happens to the incident that occurs with the seven sons of Sceva. The seven sons of Sceva. Now, Sceva is a high priest. Uh, his sons are professional exorcists. Uh, and uh, if you put yourself in, in this, uh, the ebb and flow of this day, I guess these guys are like the ghostbusters of the, of the ancient world. And they'll, they'll, uh, they'll, take, they'll take your money um, and they promise to, to cast out demons. And you have to wonder if somehow Satan just loved this that there's this connection between uh, the, the commerce of the city 
and, and money and uh, this thing that these men would do and cast out evil powers. It really played right into Satan's hand where these guys could come and say something and, and the demons left and where they go? They just went and possessed someone else. And all the while you've got this, this, uh, this financial trade that's happening where these men who think they're doing something good go and they cast out a demon uh, just for that demon to go possess someone else. And it's all embedded in, in they're getting money off this, this, this trade that's going on. And they see, you know, they must have been struggling somehow because they see that Paul's got something that they don't have. And the preaching of Paul and the name of Jesus in particular has some sort of power that they'd like to add to their toolbox. So they figure, let's give it a try. And so imagine, picture this, seven of them surround this demon-possessed man. And they, they've got this, uh, this new magical trick up their sleeve. They're going to use the name of Jesus. And they think they know what's going to happen. They think this demon's going to go leave this man. But what happens is something out of a horror movie, right? You could make a horror movie about this kind of thing. I'm not recommending that. What happens is the, the, the demon-possessed man looks them in the eyes and says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? And then he completely thrashes them. He beats them up. He rips off their clothes. And you can almost picture these men jumping out of windows, rolling out the front door, running for their lives as this demon-possessed man is not freed of his demon. He actually just unleashes his full power on these seven guys. And they go running. Seven guys overpowered by this one man. What is the message? The first thing you've got to notice is the spiritual forces of darkness are much stronger than we first imagined them to be. They're much stronger than these seven sons thought they were. You don't mess with the devil. You don't pretend like his powers are light and insignificant. You do that to your folly. You play around with witchcraft to your demise. But the second thing you have to notice is the power of Jesus in this incident. Now you think, at first I scratched my head and wondered, Okay, right after this incident, Luke says that the, all the people in Ephesus, everyone heard about this thing. And then they're, they're, full, they're filled with fear. And you think, okay, that fear must be fear of the devil, fear of the, the forces of darkness. And that's partially true. But really what Luke is underscoring for us here is this profound fear and respect for the name of Jesus. Now, how does this come about? Well, it's this, the dark forces are stronger than they thought, but there's only one power who can take them on. And that's Jesus. And Jesus is not some power to control. He's not some magical talisman, some name that you add to your toolbox. In fact, the very fact that the demon recognized Jesus's name and said, I know him rings with such power. That the people were, were, were seeing this name of Jesus, it's not just a magical talisman. He's a personal savior. He's a Lord. And we can't use him lightly. He's not our lackey. He, he's not our lackey. He must be our Lord. He must have power beyond what we thought he had. And so this whole, 
This whole um, incident in which Satan's uh, through this demon beating up on these men is actually this incident that somehow in this indirect way comes to bring the people to glory in the Savior and, and, and show everyone in Ephesus, Jesus is not a name you take lightly. Jesus is real. His power is real. And even demons recognize that. I wonder if there's a lesson for us here as well. I believe there is. The lesson that the name of Jesus, I can't tell you how many times I've heard. I've seen someone repeat Jesus's name over and over again as some sort of magical talisman. As I watched on TV, um, him try to cross, he did. He crossed the Grand Canyon or not the Grand, or a portion of the Grand Canyon um, on a tightrope. And he just kept saying, Jesus name, Jesus name. He kept, he kept saying He was using it like some magical talisman. And the truth is that the name of Jesus is the name of a Savior and Lord to whom we bend our lives, and we do not use that name lightly. We also do not see Jesus as just some some talisman in our lives that when we get in a difficult situation, we pray his name and everything will work out for us. No, This whole passage is driving us to see if we don't actually have this vibrant, living, believing relationship with Jesus, then the very power that surges from our Savior to us is not there. We're left defenseless against the evil one. It's only through a vibrant, personal, faith-believing relationship with Jesus that his power is is ours. He's not your lackey. He's your Lord. Have you bent your knee to him as your Lord? Well, notice that through that crazy incident, I mean, isn't that crazy? Horrific? And yet, there's a crack that starts to form, a second crack in the dark tower. Because now you have the people starting to look away from magical talisman and they're saying, who's this Jesus? And how do we come to know him? And how do even demons recognize him and cower at him? And at this point, there's a third crack that forms in the dark tower. And it, it, it comes in through the repentance of the people in Ephesus. And particularly, get this, the repentance of Christians in Ephesus. Now we notice in our text that as soon as that happens, the incident with the seven sons of Sceva, and as soon as this word starts getting out that Jesus is real and his power is real and his power over dark forces is something to recognize, at that point, you have new baby Christians who have heard Paul's preaching, who have um, committed their lives to Christ, and they realize that there's something they're doing that is dreadfully wrong. And here's what it is. They think that they can have Jesus and their magical arts. They think they can have Jesus and their spells. And it might be, apparently is true, that you know, right next to their Bible at homes, of course, they, you know, their Old Testament, uh, the New Testament was being written, right next to their Bible, they have their spell books. And they have these tucked away. Maybe they have them tucked away so that if they come into a situation where Jesus doesn't seem to be coming through for them, they have some insurance. They can pull out the spells and see if those work. Uh, say say these, these secret incantations. 
uh, that, uh, that they, they purchased uh, before they became Christians. And so they think they can have both. And yet they start to realize as they think about this, no, we, we can't have both. Because there's a pr- profound difference between miracles and magic. What's the difference between miracles and magic? With miracles, you have a sovereign God who works through a chosen instrument so that through a, a, a special act of providence, through a special intervention in history, God's word, his gospel promises are confirmed and solidified. But with magic, you have a seeking after control. You have names of, of, of deities and, and, and perhaps even the name of God being used in the sacrilegious way to try to grab power, to seize it for ourselves and use it in the way that we, we want to use it. That's not gospel. That's not miracle. That's magic. And when people start seeing that the name of Jesus is so much more than just something that comes to, to help us on a rainy day, the name of Jesus is the name of a Lord. At that point, they start seeing that, that their magical practices are sin and ought to be repented of and turned away from. For they represent a heart that is striving after control when really we must let go of control and give it all to Jesus. And so what do they do? They bring their magical scrolls, their amulets, their talisman, their Ephesian letters, and they burn them in a big bonfire in the city of Ephesus. And I would argue that this is more than just a public protest against those magical arts. It is that, but really what it is fundamentally, what it is at its core is a personal repentance, a personal turning away, a voluntary turning away from sin to a new direction in life. And and these are baby Christians doing this. These are new believers who say, finally clicks for us. We can't have both. I wonder what it would look like for this scene to unfold in our cities today. What would this look like today? I think first it would start in the church because that's where it starts here. It starts with Christians throughout Christendom, throughout God's kingdom, throughout every denomination, confessing their sins confessing their participation in, in, in the acts of darkness. And maybe this is occultism. Maybe it is bringing uh, your, you know, the, the, the astrology portions of the magazines that you've tucked away. And maybe it is burning that. Maybe it is throwing it in the trash. I think, in fact, it does mean that. I think it also means taking those books uh, that you've, uh, where you've put your hope and, and removing them from your life. Uh, removing those things uh, that are, are functioning as those dark powers which have a grip over your souls and which are, are offering you some sense of control apart from Jesus. And it also looks today like parting ways with pornography and access to pornography. Like throwing away your, your drug stash. Parting ways with those things that you've tucked away as insurance for when Jesus doesn't quite come through for you, or at least you think he doesn't. And saying, Jesus, come what may, I give my life to you, all of it. You know, there were $5 million worth of magic goods burned that day in Ephesus. $5 million. 
you're about to see next week, that causes quite a stir in Ephesus. $5 million being burned into thin air. What do we need to, what do you need to let go of today to have that profound impact on your city and, 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 uh, and assault against the dark tower? Because notice from verse 20, the world is watching. Their neighbors see this. Their neighbors take notice of what Christians are doing and how they're maturing. And they say, you know what? Let's join them. Let's join them. And so the word of God grows and grows and grows and grows. This is a theme we see often in the book of Acts. Growth that comes at these key intervals when the word overcomes the forces of darkness. In this, in this point, the great success against the forces of darkness is the repentance that breaks out in the church itself and saying, we're not gonna live this divided life where I think I can hold, have dark powers in, in, in my life and also have Jesus. I'm saying goodbye to the things that I'm addicted to. I'm going to say goodbye to the dark arts. I'm going to say goodbye to control on my terms so that I can live wholeheartedly for Jesus. And that commitment is like a light to the nations that breaks forth and God's kingdom grows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these three cracks in this passage which caused the dark tower to crumble and the gospel to penetrate uh, the city of Ephesus. We pray that we would see this more and more today. Lord, already in Dayton and in cities around our country, um, we see that there are churches uh, who, uh, who lay claim to your name. Would our churches be purged of all idols, be purged of um, the, the ways of the evil one, so that we would be all the more fully witnesses to your name and light shining in the darkness so that whatever dark castles still stand, they would fall and your kingdom would advance powerfully. We pray, Lord, that we would even think today very carefully about what we need to let go of so that we participate in, in this kind of revival. And Lord, we also pray that you would give us a great confidence this morning over the powers of the evil one, knowing, Lord, that you are more powerful than him and that his kingdom cannot stand for yours will replace it and even has begun to do so. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.